0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm doing great. No grading, so, you know. Oh, (laughs) the semester
1: is just starting.
0: Oh, I know. We still have a couple of weeks. um, So I've been going out in the field a lot, even though there's all this El Nino rain happening. And... um, it's It's been a relaxing couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, know. when I was when I was back home, the rain was a real problem. We had all kinds of flooding.
0: Oh, oh yeah, I guess so. Um, we missed out on a large portion of that, although I will say I was a little bit of a looky-loo and drove to eastern Oklahoma and uh, checked out <laughs> a lot of the 15-plus inches of rain. And um, it was cool. I spent New Year's on uh, Fort Gibson Lake, so it's been you know northeast oklahoma there and there was a bridge that usually say uh, 15 to 20 foot sailboats can go under there couldn't have been a foot between the bridge and the surface of the lake
1: oh yeah there's uh there's a mill that's largely a tourist attraction now uh, in the same area and the water wheel was completely underwater <laughs> on the side of the mill
0: rendering it slightly inefficient <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> but, uh, so that was uh, that was interesting. We did talk about El Nino a few shows back and said it's normally warmer and wetter than usual, and it's proving to be the case.
0: Uh, it certainly is, although I think we're about to go into a cold snap, unfortunately. Um, I'll try to survive. It's nothing like you have in Pennsylvania, so.
1: i <laughs> say it was seven degrees when I got on the bus this morning.
0: <laughs> I don't even understand what you said. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's Fahrenheit.
0: <laughs> oh. Ooh. <laughs> Okay, so my 43 today didn't seem so bad.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so it's been pretty busy. We just got back, so trying to catch up, you know, and get out from under the pile of email and conference reimbursement paperwork <laughs> and data requests from the conference. And also we've got school children coming through the lab this week for demos, which is a lot of fun.
0: Uh, that's super great. Um, we're in the process. We're almost done building our interactive topographic map module that i know school kids and college kids alike are really going to love you know those big interactive sandboxes that it projects a. oh yeah projects a topographic map and it reacts to you moving the sand and i'm super excited about it <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> those are pretty neat i somebody had those one of those at agu either this year or last year oh it's it always the most popular
0: fun. thing um and it's sitting in our basement right now and yeah i can't wait to you can make volcanoes with it and oceans and (laughs) it's going to be the best lab ever
1: (laughs) nice so i've uh in some of our talking offline know that you've got a new year's resolution about (laughs) note-taking
0: um maybe
1: (laughs) (laughs) what are you going to try to do this year
0: Oh man, I'm going to try to vow, you know, we talk all about like all these efficiency things and I've sort of already protested my, not protested, professed my love for Evernote and I just upgraded it and I'm going to vow to use it to its fullest extent (laughs) because now it does cool stuff like, you know, clipping pieces of web pages and saving articles for reading later and... Basically, I have, like, three notebooks. I don't know how to do anything else with it. (laughs) So that is my tech resolution, is that I'm going to embrace and use Evernote, and I'm sure I'll be complaining about it five months from now.
1: I was going to say, in a few months, we have to check in and see how that's going.
0: Yes. Yes, we should.
1: (laughs) But, well, last week, we started talking about map projections and went over some of the basics but before we go into part two of that, I thought we should talk about some recent news that's been buzzing around just the last couple of days.
0: Uh, right, exactly. And this is sort of right up your seismological alley. Um, and of course, we're talking about the supposed H-bomb test in North Korea.
1: Right. So there was a initially about magnitude 5.1 event located in North Korea that was suspicious, because it was in the same area as previous nuclear tests and had a very similar waveform as previous nuclear tests. And then, lo and behold, uh, not too much after that, they came out and said, we detonated a hydrogen bomb. Right. But that may not be the case.
0: And I, I would say it's kind of cool, but it is cool because you're actually using the seismic signature and you can tell more than just, hey, this was a bomb. I mean, you can tell the difference between an H-bomb and a plain old run-of-the-mill nuclear bomb, right?
1: Well, you can't directly tell the difference between the bomb types, at least not that I know of. No, but, but energy outputs. Yes, energy is the key. This was a relatively small bomb, we can tell. And I don't think, and from what I've heard from others, it's not really physically possible to make a hydrogen bomb that has that little energy output.
0: Yeah, that's that really small. Yeah, that that's what I had heard, too. Um And they're talking about even a a sort of a failed hydrogen bomb would still have a larger yield than what it looked like seismically had occurred. Um, So that's pretty interesting. It'll be interesting to see in the next, you know, couple of weeks when people really start to understand that seismic data, you know, what the exact numbers coming out of that test are.
1: Right and I'm going to link in the show notes a short YouTube video it's just a few minutes long. it's really well done It's from the folks over at Minute Physics that talk about how we try to tell when an illegal nuclear test is done. And huh. It talks about using seismometers, it talks about using hydrophones underwater, infrasound in the air, and then here's the the key part. So now that we are suspicious that this has happened, they are going to be looking for isotopes at isotope monitoring stations around the world, as well as flying isotope-sniffing planes in the area, uh-huh. trying to pick up anything that would have come from an atomic or hydrogen bomb, and that's where you can tell the difference.
0: Right, exactly. That's a, that's a more direct measure, not an energy estimate, but a direct measure of the materials that were inside of it.
1: Right. And the whole physics of huge explosions underground is really interesting. And I think that we might end up doing a show on that at some point.
0: Oh, yeah. And it definitely dovetails with, you know, one of my interests, which is um, impact crater processes, actually. So um, there's a lot of overlap within those two. And I know a lot of the early studying of impact craters came from looking at nuclear test sites and then other, you know, regular bombing test sites as well.
1: Right, if you go to Google Earth and look at the Nevada test site, it is a little moon-looking.
0: Mm-hmm. That is for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We should get on to maps, because I'm not sure how long we're going to go on about
0: this. (laughs) (laughs) I think there could probably be, like, parts 12 and 13 to to this, because as I think we talked about last time, this map-making business, it's really complex, because we're looking at this globe... And trying to put it on a flat piece of paper. And it doesn't work very well.
1: Yeah, putting the, the 3D world on a 2D surface is pretty hard. And at AGU, I actually saw an effort to have an actual 3D globe that was projected from the inside with data on it. Ooh, uh, how, how so people are look? realizing, it, it looked really nice, and people are realizing the need for 3D visualization. But this globe cost over $100,000. So the maps are still cheaper.
0: (laughs) Yeah, probably not going to be carrying that around with you anytime soon. Um, Right. (laughs) um, But, you know, we say, you know, Earth is a sphere, and it's all this math to try to make this sphere fit this rectangle of map. But, I mean, that's not exactly true either, because we're not really just a sphere.
1: Yeah, Earth's a little fat around the middle, and it's lumpy.
0: What'd you say about me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, of course, <laughs> so of course, when you say this, I immediately think of the geoid, because you know how disgusted I am by its existence. <laughs> right. But I mean, the Earth's shape is kind of like that, too. It's not this perfect thing. So not only are we, you know, making these assumptions of this sphere and putting it on a rectangle, you know, we're already screwing up from the get-go.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we talked about when you do project this, that you can preserve area, Distance, scale, or conformality, which you said I made up.
0: <laughs> and I still hold by that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> generally, uh, you don't preserve any of them perfectly. Right. You definitely don't preserve two. Uh, and it's all bad somehow. And so we said that there are all kinds of different ways to get around this. There are cylindrical projections, conic projections, azimuthal projections, really weird other projections. Mm-hmm. And we went over what all that meant. But I thought we should talk about picking a projection, so how you should project your data based on what you're doing, and then go through some of our favorites, because there's a lot of really neat, weird, and useful map projections.
0: Uh, Yeah, there really are. That was sort of the fun part about this, because I feel, I mean, I don't know if other scientists feel like this, but I feel like we really get stuck in the, you find the one that you need, which is what you should do. You know, the very first thing when you're picking what you need is considering what you do need. What are you trying to preserve? You know, how big of an area are you looking at? Are you going to want to quantify this area? And if so, you know, what is the best projection to meet that need? And I feel like once you sort of get that down, you don't shop around for anything better.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I've seen an example of folks trying to do uh, labs with, you know, undergraduates or, just illustrating a point of how, say, earthquake location works. Yes. And they have the stations plotted on a map that doesn't preserve distance, and then they're drawing circles.
0: Um, so I'm sure I'm guilty of that.
1: <laughs> and that just doesn't work. And another thing that we see a lot is, say you have uh, basically a scatter plot on a map, and you're looking at how dense the dots are. Uh, this could be anything. This could be locations that... An illness has been reported or anything like that Mm -hmm. that would be a dot density plot and if you don't plot that on a projection where area is equal across the map then you can delude yourself as to where the dense and sparse areas are it could be completely wrong just because of your map projection
0: exactly and it's not something you think about especially if you're not sort of in that earth science mindset you know if you're That's a really great example because if that's what you're looking at and then you determine that there's density and you go to search for these environmental issues that are, say, causing some kind of sickness, you know, you're really missing the point. All simply because you've mapped it on something that isn't accurately representing, you know, the spatial scatter of your data. Um, That's actually a really easy point to illustrate and I even did it in at the end of my intro class in December. We talked about, you know, climate change. That's sort of one of the last lectures we do. And we look at averaging um, global temperatures. And so they're averaged based on these, you know, densities of different monitoring stations and everything. And the densities in the monitoring stations are different based on where you are on the globe. And then you put that into a computer program... And you really want to preserve that sort of spatial area. And it doesn't necessarily do that just based on your projection that you're using. And it was a really easy visual thing to see, you know, how we're overestimating temperature in some places, underestimating it in others, all based on how you plot your data.
1: And this is going into policy decisions. This is important <laughs> Ex- stuff.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So... That very basic thing of picking your map is actually really important.
1: (laughs) Yes, and another one is if you're actually trying to get from point A to point B. Hmm. Then we're
0: not talking about finding the nearest Starbucks. (laughs) Or maybe we are.
1: (laughs) That could be the case. In fact, for that, a Mercator projection would be fine, most Mm -hmm. likely, as we'll talk about. Uh, Exactly. So when you're navigating... Basically, you could use, say, a mnemonic projection, which is a rather fun one, uh, or a mercator projection, let's say. so. You could use any others, but let's just look at these two. So a mercator projection is what has been traditionally used for navigation in the past, because you draw a straight line on it, and that straight line is a line of constant bearing. So if you're sailing across the ocean, you draw the line, measure the bearing, set your compass to that bearing and just keep sailing
0: right so we talked about this on the last show too where i talked the antidote about (laughs) the guy on the airplane um (laughs) and the girls next to him saying why are we going in this arc wouldn't it be faster if we went in a straight line (laughs) to get to where we're going
1: right and it was
0: really embarrassing
1: (laughs) in days of old before we could follow these great circle arcs with a constantly changing bearing easily with gps now right the mercator was great because it was simple to use and your route was a little longer but you got there on a constant heading exactly but mnemonic projections which are not commonly used i don't know that i've ever seen one in the wild
0: yes i know me neither Uh,
1: (laughs) and i don't know why because i i like them a lot (laughs) a great circle arc plots (laughs) as a straight line
0: uh And, okay, so a great circle, for those of you that don't know what a great circle is, because I feel like, you know, we both probably throw that around a lot. um, Lines of longitude are a great circle. Anything that, a plane that intersects a sphere and cuts it into equal parts.
1: Right, so a great circle arc is the shortest path between two points on a sphere.
0: Right, and so you're following that arc that that plane has that intersected that sphere makes and so we've we've included a link to the wikipedia on this uh mnemonic thing because i also hadn't really heard of it and i'm super obsessed with it now as well <laughs> after reading all this stuff about it just preparing for this show because it makes so much sense <laughs>
1: Yeah, and after talking uh, to—granted, okay, the mnemonic projection looks rather weird.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) But thinking about it in a sort of scientific plotting data way.
1: Right. And, I mean, talking to uh, one of my colleagues about this, he said, you know, all of these projections are really mathematically simple. And some of them were done for probably the sake of saying, look at this mathematical projection we can do.
0: Oh, yes. So on this Wikipedia link that we have of a list of all the map projections, that is very obviously illustrated because you can sort them by date. And so I did that (laughs) just to look at that. And it seemed like everything done from like 1940, well, not even that, 1920 on, was just let's tweak this thing with some, you know, sort of mathematical voodoo and see what it makes. (laughs)
1: Yeah, but Um, (laughs) when you look at this projection or others, you look at it and you know somebody was thinking.
0: And what's cool... Because these are clever. (laughs) Yes, and this mnemonic, I mean, it's attributed to uh, Thales. It says possibly, so I don't know how good the actual research is on that, but from 580 BC. So this is pretty old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it gives a really good look, you know, towards the center, but obviously you get distorted as you get closer to the edges. I mean, really distorted. Um, but I will say...
1: Try to to find your home on the map. It's hard.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, very hard. (laughs) But this makes a lot of sense to me, um, because I sort of, I work with great circles. It's a thing that we do when we're talking about reconstruction of continents a lot, so... That made a lot of sense. I thought it was really cool, and I thought it was cool that this is sort of one of the oldest ones as well, that you take this, and then you can do some math voodoo and yield a whole bunch more of these uh, projections that we're more familiar with.
1: Yeah, and, you know, this. this is a good point. So we're talking about all these projections that look weird but are elegant and are great for doing data plots on and doing data analysis. But when you go to share your results, you don't want to distort the data wildly but you need to have some aesthetic component because we've talked on and on and on about (laughs) aesthetics so you have to use some kind of a compromise map that maybe balances the distortion of shape and the distortion of area to still get the point across about your data but have people to be able to find north america or south america or australia you know anything like that
0: yeah right exactly which i feel like sort of the lambert is one of those that is a compromise map because I mean it's a little bit older but it looks more like like a map that you would be used to seeing I feel like so and the Mercator as well you know
1: yeah Mercator is if you see a map on a conference wall I think we may have said this last time that's probably what it is
0: oh absolutely um I'm gonna change all my maps to you know hammer retro as but we'll get to that (laughs)
1: Uh, yes that's my favorite i think uh so when you're plotting the entire globe it's really hard for isolated regions like say for a continent sized block uh equidistant projections do a pretty good job they're not perfect but they do the trick right but when you're plotting the entire globe you're going to wildly distort many things S- uh, for example the mercator you can't plot the poles
0: Right, which is a problem for many of these.
1: (laughs) Right, Uh, except the ones that are polar-oriented and then the equator is (laughs) weird. Right. So there are some compromise maps. I really like the Robinson projection.
0: I don't know about you. (laughs) Well, since you had chosen that one, I tried to find a different one that was visually pleasing. Um, uh, Yes, I I would agree with that. The Robinson, um, it... Looks like a map should. So the Robinson is this pseudo-cylindrical, you know, sort of flat at the poles, chunky around the equator. You're probably really familiar with it. And it's fairly new, too. Uh, 1963, really. And of note, it's used by Rand McNally.
1: Right. And it has been somewhat foregone in favor of some more modern projections by some map makers, I will say I do not like the modern projections like the Winkle Triple as well as I like this.
0: Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I wonder if that is... When I figured out that the Robinson was the Rand McNally one, I wondered if that's why it was so appealing. It was just because... I mean, I still carry around a Rand McNally Atlas, um, and my road trip companions are always rolling their eyes until we lose service, <laughs> and then they have to get out the... Rand McNally map. Um. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah, partial I mean, so that as well.
1: There is this thing called Tissot's Indicatrix, and I will probably be corrected on the pronunciation of the name. <laughs> uh, it's a French mathematician's idea, and it's basically a way to see you put these identical circles all over the 3D sphere, and then you project those circles with the map, and it visualizes the distortion. Mm. Uh, And so comparing things like Robinson and Winkle Triple, you can see, well, okay, the Winkle's a little better in the Indicatrix, but I think it makes things look a little goofy.
0: Uh, Yeah, but is it goofy or is it more correct, you know?
1: You know, that's maybe it's because it's what I grew up with, but I do (laughs) like that projection. Uh, It does all of these worldwide projections, both Robinson and Winkle Triple. There is no north arrow because north changes depending on where you are on the map, which can be a little confusing. Uh right Unlike yeah
0: the exactly, and I don't know the South America is so skinny in the Winkle triple, um it is. <laughs> so, I really liked when we were talking. I mean the Robinson that's it's beautiful. It's what I'm used to looking at because I'm obsessed with looking at Rand McNally when I was little. Um, but I liked this armadillo. Armadillo, Did you look at the armadillo. I,
1: I think I missed this one. <laughs>
0: Uh so the armadillo projection. I was trying to find something just visually pleasing, right? Just something that I was like, that looks like the earth we live on. And maybe it's because I like Tauruses so much. Not the not a the star sign. One. <laughs> um so it's from nineteen forty three. Um it's listed as other in its projection type. <laughs> um Yeah. S- <laughs> because that's what it is. Um it's not conformal, and it's not equal area either. Um, and it says that it instead it affords a view evoking a perspective projection, while showing most of the globe instead of you know hemispheres like other projections do. Um, I think it's really interesting, and so it's basically the whole globe projected onto half of a torus. And it's called the armadillo because as an armadillo curls up, that's sort of what it looks like. It's like a rounded sort of well, it's a torus.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and uh it's kind of interesting hmm.
0: looking. I mean, unless you live in Australia, because it gets kind of gets cut off there at the sides, but
1: Yeah, Australia gets cut off and it says in the strict projection, New Zealand doesn't show up at all, but most of them add it.
0: Right. Yeah. So Yeah, because you could scoot it, it over a little.
1: It is interesting. It looks like you cut the wrapper at down a line of longitude on a globe and just unwrapped it.
0: Yes, yeah, basically. That's so basically. links in the show
1: notes, but definitely take a look at this. I've never seen it, and maybe I'll use it sometime just to see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's sort of a different way of looking at it, and it it looks even though it's two dimensional, it looks less rectangular, you know, than right. a lot of the maps, and it sort of evokes the actual shape of the earth in my mind as a put where the other ones don't
1: so talking about the shape of the earth you found some websites that will (laughs) blow your mind and delayed the recording of this podcast because we were competing
0: (laughs) it's so true um so i don't remember where i saw this somewhere not very long ago and it's this website that Compares the size of anything to Africa, basically. And I remember, and I know I mentioned this in last week's show, because I always think of that West Wing episode with the cartographers for social balance. Social equality. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's so crazy. So you can pick any part of the world and basically drag it over Africa and see how distorted your own personal worldview is. Um, and and you can do other things too, like Brazil versus the United States. You know, right. uh, Brazil's huge. <laughs> yeah, this I mean, is yeah.
1: pretty mind blowing, really.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, the Brazil from top to bottom is larger than the U.S., and I don't think we really get that when we're looking at a map, and how tiny the U.K. is. That one always blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's very little.
1: <laughs> well, and then you found this thing that is called the Mercator Puzzle. <laughs> and if you don't fully get what we're talking about, about area distortion, you need to go load this up and play with it for five minutes.
0: Which will it be ha- much longer than five minutes.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. So it has these little outlines on a Google Earth interface or Google Maps interface that you can drag around and you're just trying to match them to with where they are actually on the planet.
0: And right. as you and drag
1: them, the shape of them changes to match the projection, uh the Mercator projection. So they're little bitty at the equator and as you go towards the poles, they blow up until they're very big and start curving around to, across the top of the map.
0: And I thought that this was sort of silly when I saw it. I was like, "Oh, well this is not worth putting it in" until I realized how much of the distortion it actually shows because if you try to drag something onto antarctica you see what the mercator projection makes antarctica do <laughs> which is <Yeah>. ridiculous
1: <laughs> and there are three pieces that i still have not figured out where they go uh, oh, after I'm, our I'm, few minutes of playing
0: i'm down to just one i only have one left <laughs>
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> you might beat me.
0: <laughs> uh, so this is super great, and that's linked into the show notes, and you should definitely go do it. Um, this is one of the best things I've seen that shows the distortion. I wish this existed for a bunch of other map projections as well because this would be a great sort of high school, well, heck, it would be a great college-level um, exercise to show you know what is physically happening, like what the math is doing. To what you're envisioning, your world looks like.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that it's probably Mercator because that's what Google Maps uses.
0: Right. It, yeah, that's that's what I figured too. And, but there I has mean, to
1: be a way to to change it.
0: R- and I think this is an excellent, excellent teaching tool. Even just this one is an excellent teaching tool. I will very likely in my intro non-science major classes um, have students play with this. yes and i just got
1: madagascar so i'm down to two now
0: (laughs) (laughs) mauritania was the one that was getting me um oh yeah (laughs) yep (laughs) so that's really cool and as you can tell it kind of blows your mind about thinking about this stuff because you think you have a good idea of what your spot in the world looks like but you don't
1: (laughs) no not at all
0: (laughs) which i think leads us into some of the stranger projections um I'll let you describe your pick because, mm, yeah, this is weird.
1: <laughs> yeah. So last week we had linked in the notes, and I'll link it in again this week the list of 60 map projections on Wikipedia. And this is a projection from 1910. Uh, I have no idea why you would ever use this, <laughs> really. It's called the Hammer Retro Azimuthal projection. And you can also do the back hemisphere. But it's basically the uh, the direction from any point on the map is correct relative to the point in the exact center of the map. Which... So if you put your house at the center, you could get directions to anywhere in the globe based on that. But it's very weird.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even just saying the words back and front hemispheres make it weird anyway, right? And looking yeah. at it it's it looks like it's virtually unusable really
1: yeah so once again links are in the show so you have to go click on them to see it yes. uh it looks kind of like you wrapped a cylindrical projection and then bent it up on the ends uh, uh yeah
0: like put it into a black hole or something i don't
1: <laughs> yeah and the back hemisphere looks kind of like the reverse of a of a microphone pattern or something that you would see mm-hmm. drawn MD. out it's The front hemisphere
0: looks like a conquistador hat. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's a good description.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to figure out what that shape was, um, and I don't think I would ever use that. Um, The one that I chose, obviously, that's the weirdest one. There was hands down.
1: Well, and the, the weird thing about this is, even though it's one of the stranger looking map projections, the formulas to do the coordinate transform are incredibly simple compared to some of the more pleasing projections
0: uh I thought that too, and I thought that was weird that just this simple <laughs> uh, you know this simple mathematical thing that I actually recognize created that <laughs> uh,
1: yeah <laughs> so uh what did you pro- what did you pick for your strange projection
0: uh, so my strange one I think it's wonderfully elegant is the waterman butterfly projection
1: oh. <laughs> this thing is just horrendous
0: <laughs> what <laughs> see now conceptually i feel like this makes a lot of sense and conceptually, i do, it makes
1: sense but man it's weird
0: <laughs> it is weird and i will admit that i do have a bit of i had to read buckminster fuller's autobiography for some honors class in undergraduate and so since then i've been a little obsessed with bucky and some of Bucky's (laughs) influence goes into this projection. I mean,
1: this map is in multiple pieces. Antarctica Um. is its own little chunk.
0: (laughs) It's its own thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, this reminds me of sort of like those little tetrahedras you used to make in, in elementary school and you'd write stuff on the tetrahedra and, you know, you could make it do little shapes and stuff. Um, Oh yeah. uh, That's that's sort of what that reminds me of. Undone. Um, it's, really interesting um and it's from this specific one is from 1996 but it co- it goes from the late 1800s k hill who was an architect sort of had this butterfly map principle at first and he used a lot of sort of buckminster fuller's Dymaxian projection which this is all linked in the wikipedia article but if you're familiar with what that looks like it's sort of like that um and it basically unfolds the globe into these little polyhedron shapes and i think it does a good job okay in my mind it does a good job preserving sort of continental shapes versus each other yeah the shapes
1: look true. pretty good i don't think that it strictly actually preserves anything but no, I don't qualitatively think it, does it doesn't look too bad
0: <laughs> um but i just it's pretty It looks like a butterfly that Antarctica is floating (laughs) underneath.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And if you think that the formula for uh, hammer was simple, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Everything that has to do with Buckminster Fuller is ridiculous. That's some serious geometric voodoo that's happening. Um, But... uh, but I really do. I mean, Antarctica is floating down there, but it gives a much better idea about its size relative to everything else. Because I think looking at that Mercator your whole life, you just think that Antarctica is just massive diaper on the globe, you know. <laughs> and it takes think up it's like this big all the straight lines, <laughs> right? And it's just <laughs> this—it's this tiny little thing down here, you know. That's the size of Australia. And I thought this was a really pretty map projection. I would put this on my wall. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it is it's almost art.
0: Yes, yes, it definitely is. But um, then,
1: so I, I think we agreed on the next category that we decided, which was the oh, most yeah. boring or overused projection.
0: Right, right, exactly. I, I modified Mercator to Web Mercator just because, you know, it's what every digital device uses, and everyone should be familiar with that projection. I think it's probably sad because I bet a lot of people don't even know what that projection's name is just they'd recognize it from Google Maps.
1: Yeah, and I mean I think a lot of people that maybe haven't listened to the show and don't deal with maps that often don't even realize that there's different ways to project a map.
0: Uh exactly, but now they can walk around saying, "I see you're using that web mercator."
1: <laughs> and I see you drew a straight line on it. <laughs> you should not travel that straight line.
0: <laughs> exactly. And then you can whip out your gnomic <laughs> and you can look at your geodesic and figure out your straight line to the shortest point and look really smart.
1: Yeah. And we already talked about what we thought was the most pleasing whole world map. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But then comes the one that is really hard to get right, which is the map for polar regions.
0: Yeah. Because which...
1: they're not on most maps.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, which, you know, 90 eight percent of people don't care about right so that's why. it's true uh, but there are <laughs>
1: polar scientists uh many of them that i'm good friends with that really care about having good maps and polar regions which is really hard because when you're on antarctica north is kind of ambiguous
0: <laughs> i was just gonna say like it's actually hard to make a map because of your compass when you're on right. these <laughs> polar regions um yeah <laughs> exactly um i think the most common your pick the stereographic projection
1: this is exactly what it sounds like
0: (laughs) yep (laughs)
1: this is a mathematical polar projection and it's wonderfully simple it's much easier to think of in terms of radius and theta than latitude and longitude
0: (laughs) exactly and so this one is really old too right i mean this is hipparchus 200 bc um It doesn't look, if you're trying to just look at the map, it does not look right. But mathematically, so easy.
1: Yes. But you did not pick the stereographic projection, which is what most polar scientists that I know use. Uh, You picked one that I actually hadn't seen in the wild before either. And it's it's good for one pole, for sure. And (laughs) the other one has some weird things happen.
0: Right. Um, so I was just trying to be different because obviously the um, the stereographic projection is hands down what everyone uses. You know, we use stereo nets for all kinds of stuff. So that made a lot of sense. But I picked this one that I can't say. And it is the <laughs> Pierce Quincunquial. Is that how you would say that?
1: That works for me.
0: Or Quincunquial. Um, It is conformal. <laughs> it's from the late 1800s. And I thought that the coolest part about this is that it sort of takes the equator, and that's the part that gets distorted, which makes sense if you want something that actually, you know, does well to look at the poles, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the equator turns into a square.
0: Yes. Which on this is, projection. Which is weird. It's not um, what you would think. So the sphere is presented as a square and the parts where it are exaggerated are the parts where the equator sort of makes these square turns, right? Um, The curvature of the lines on the map representing great circles is really slight. All right. So it makes this nice square and it's conformable everywhere. Just what I just said, it's conformable everywhere except at those four corners of the inner hemisphere, basically where you bend the equator to get this square Um, and, you know, what the Escher fan in me likes is it can be tessellated in all directions.
1: (laughs) That is a really nice thing, and the the example that we'll link in shows the North Pole at the center of the map, and Antarctica is split into four pieces, a quarter of it at each corner of the map.
0: Right, but, Uh, you know, you could invert that.
1: (laughs) You could invert that, and I think the inverted one might actually be even weirder looking because then more of the continents get split up
0: yeah yeah this this is recognizable as a map in terms of the continents but then when you start to look at you know the great circles you're like well that's weird they're not actual lines of latitude and longitude but it's super cool um i read a lot about this one um because again it seems like the math is fairly simple and you never really see this but it looks like a good representation um so I thought that one was really cool, and it's got a cool name.
1: If we can say it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Please somebody, you know, the pierce part I got right for sure. It's that quincuncle projection part that I don't have. Audio um, comments
1: are welcome. It's been a while <laughs> since we've had one.
0: Uh, yes. Um, so it's it seems pretty, you know, using elliptical functions and stuff, and that whole tessellation stuff, that's pretty neat. Yeah, um, absolutely. And there's some actual pictures of the tessellated version on Wikipedia where you've got, you know, the North Pole and then Antarctica in the center. So you can see how it actually looks. It looks pretty good. I like it a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've gone on about projections for a while. In fact, two <laughs> shows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's just so many things to say about them.
1: <laughs> it's true, but it does show that... We are, in fact,
0: nerds. (laughs) I don't think we needed this to confirm that, but I'll roll with that. It's (laughs) true.
1: So maybe we should move on to everybody's favorite segment, which is not going to help our case any. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. Yay!
0: Oh, man. So, you know, we just said that we're nerds, but I didn't understand this paper.
1: (laughs) You know, this one definitely (laughs) made me think we should be Teaching more about finance.
0: (laughs) Or we should just stick with our jobs and not worry about any of the stuff.
1: So this is a listener-submitted paper uh, from listener Mark, who has submitted some stuff to us before. And it's all absolutely great. So thanks Mm -hmm. for sending that in. And this means that all of you should send in fun papers, because (laughs) we actually will do them. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But this is... It's a trap (laughs) emperor palpatine's poison pill by zachary feinstein and this is on the archive so you can go grab the pdf freely It's from washington university st louis
0: ah excellent that's always a plus um so obviously everyone's gone to star wars lately right um even we all ventured out to it i will say i'm a trekkie so that's probably why i don't understand this paper
1: But, you know, I actually haven't made it to the new Star Wars. Uh, probably oh. the day this airs or the day after I will be done. But after getting the plague at AGU, I didn't make it. And then oh. Christmas time hit.
0: Wow. All right. Well, I won't give any spoilers away. Uh, not that you probably haven't already seen them all on the Internet anyway.
1: I have been so careful. There is a plug-in for your browser to hide spoilers. Oh.
0: <laughs> well, my six-year-old liked it. So if that, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs>
1: Well, this paper says, okay, what if two fully armed and operational death stars were destroyed in about a four-year period? Uh, What would would the repercussions be on the economic system of the galaxy? Yeah. And, (laughs) and, you know, we've done some papers similar to this before. We take something that's a totally ludicrous, made-up scenario— but actually try to learn real useful things from it, like the zombie uh, disease spread paper that we had a few months back now.
0: Yep. Yep, the zombie one always uh, sticks out as something. And this one, I I will say, (laughs) scaling today's money to build Death Stars, just, it almost (laughs) seemed... (laughs) I couldn't even get my head around it. I mean, you think that our... National debt is bad now. Try building a Death Star.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I also like that this paper, so they're talking about um, economics and finance is explained by the Force by Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi is, quote, created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Citation, Lucas, 1977. (laughs)
0: Uh, oh, it's so true. And exactly like the force, only a small number of people understand and can manipulate economics and finance. You <laughs> Which know, I guess this... means that Warren Buffett is, you know, <laughs> emperor probably yeah, or something. I mean, yeah.
1: This was fascinating. They, they make a model of the galactic economy mm-hmm. and do some calibration based on current numbers and then use that to say how much would the bailout have to be to keep the economy from collapsing after the Death Stars were destroyed.
0: Which is a... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The footnotes in this uh, paper are fantastic, by the way. Um, Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is, again, you know, you think this is really silly. Some nerds sat around and did this, but this is a completely feasible thing to do, just like the zombie outbreak. Because if you, as a government... as a a country, as a larger economy, like the EU or something like that, putting all your money into doing something that fails, you know, that's a big deal. And so, like, the first thing they did when they modeled, began to model the galactic economy was look at some of the... And he has copious, um, copious sort of things he's looked at that give you good ideas of how big the Death Star was and stuff like that. And they come up with this crazy... (laughs) What was
1: that? So, th- the cost of steel for the Death Star <laughs> One would come out to about to quadrillion 2012 dollars.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what? And then they start comparing
1: <laughs> this to aircraft carriers and what it costs, like what the uh, finishing out costs are versus dollar of steel to get an idea of what it would cost to retrofit the inside, neglecting research and development on weapons mm. and just. <laughs> I mean, you start getting into the mini quintillions of dollars
0: I, yes, quickly. Yes, two hundred twenty-six quintillion, and that's for the steel, not for the R and D. And so that's for the Death Star too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So they take these crazy numbers that they figured out based on the size of their Death Stars, and um, you know, sort of scale that to this galactic economy and stick it into this model. I will say that Figure Two Point One, which shows a picture of the Death Star. <laughs> the caption is not a moon exclamation <laughs> point mhm that's excellent. no moon
1: it's a space station
0: <laughs> excellent yes
1: and then you start calculating the galactic gross product or ggp and over a 20 year period uh you know they assume okay the death star would uh, consume i think it was about percent GDP over 20 years and knowing what the Death Star cost using the atomic bomb project as a comparison for how much GDP or GP is going to be consumed Mm -hmm. they say that over the 20-year period the GDP was about 92 sextillion dollars or 4.66 trillion (laughs) dollars per year
0: which is so crazy um I loved how they compared this to the Manhattan Project you know like our biggest weapons expenditure which is feasibly what the Death Star would be as well um, exactly, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Um, and so, <laughs> I love this. Uh, they say the intergalactic banking clan, right? So this right. national bank that is known to be too big to fail, <laughs> because it was nationalized following the Clone Wars, <laughs> 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 according to Wikipedia. <laughs>
1: uh huh. Wikipedia <laughs> is a great source for this kind uh, of thing.
0: Exactly. And so now we've set up this banking system, which I don't understand because I'm a geologist. (laughs) 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 But the whole point is to talk about the financial crisis and what you need to get to get bailed out of this when these Death Stars fail.
1: Yeah, and they start talking about like what the markets would do after the Death Star 2 is destroyed. And they say, well, let's look at the 9-11 terrorist attacks and how much the Dow Jones and S&P 500 went down immediately following that. And let's Mm. look at fake tweets that said there was terror attacks later, like in 2013, and they can even cause market drops just out of fear of an attack. Uh,
0: Uh, Yes, I had that highlighted as well because they said that fake tweet from the AP in 2013, caused a 1% drop in a four-minute window before they corrected their information.
1: And that doesn't sound like much, but it's enough for some people Ugh. to lose their shirt.
0: Oh, right, exactly. And had it not been corrected in four minutes, what could have happened? Right. So. And
1: they basically, given what happened in real life then, they think that uh, this battle would have caused the galactic market to drop about 20%. Uh, and that's before you talk about any defaulting on government debt or anything like that, which is obviously going to happen.
0: Right. Right. Exactly.
1: This <laughs> is where the finance gets a little complicated.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't have there's... anything highlighted past this because... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about like what kind of insurance you would have, and basically there wouldn't be a lot of insurance because you would just assume this galactic bank is too big to fail, and... Yeah, I lost it in the um, big banks. There's a lot of really good footnotes trying to explain this, though.
1: Well, but the end picture here is that the Rebel Alliance would need to prepare a lot of money, like 15 to 20% of the GDP, to keep the entire economic system from collapsing.
0: Right. right. And
1: that basically would be entering a Great Depression space equivalent. <laughs>
0: um well you're kind of losing losing that point because it's a great depression as he points out of astronomical proportions <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: uh, yeah uh, uh, uh. <laughs> um i was actually sort of surprised by that 20 percent
1: that's a lot it especially when your yearly ggp is what was it 4.66 trillion dollars or something that's a lot of mm-hmm. money
0: uh, yes, it is. I just would have thought the percentage would have been better. The, the sextillions of dollars I quit thinking about. I <laughs> just uh, yeah. focused on the percentages after that. Um, But it's a really, uh, it's a really in depth, as you can tell from neither one of us being able to understand it. I mean, it's a really in depth treatment of this galactic economy. And it is seeking to model, you know, something that we've put a lot of money into, and it fails. Now, how are we going to get out of it?
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's worth looking at the references, too. There are some funny ones like Wikipedia, but there are also (laughs) some serious ones that talk about the Federal Reserve System and things that I should probably know more about, honestly, Uh, mixed in with papers, like a serious paper called How Much Would It Cost to Build the Death Star?
0: Uh, Right. And um, there's another one in here that I have highlighted to look at. Um, We the people, this isn't the petition response you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which yeah is also you know a serious thing i mean using star wars but trying to understand it in the concept of an actual economy yes and so the scary one twitter trading influence <laughs> laid bare by fake tweets that's really scary uh,
1: yes it is social media is fascinating
0: <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but you but, should like us on facebook <laughs>
1: Yes. Yes, you should. You should like us on Facebook and uh, follow us on Twitter and all of that. And if you don't follow our friends over at the Orbital Mechanics podcast, you should go check them out. And also, if you don't follow some of the comic strips that we talk about, like XKCD or the PhD comics, it's really worth going and looking. And I know you had a favorite PhD comic.
0: Oh, I did. So I totally linked this one in because I feel like it's the struggle that we've probably both been going through since we sat back down at our desks at this past week. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. So I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to make you go look at it. It's linked in the show notes if you aren't already on Jorge Cham's email list like I'm assuming we both are.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably where we should wrap things up, but if anybody has any comments or things that you think we missed or uh, maybe stated incorrectly, or you just have some input for us, maybe you'd like to send us fun paper that you would like to hear us discuss, there's a lot of ways you can do it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Uh, Yes, I would please like somebody to tell me how to pronounce... some of these map projections and you can do that <laughs> by sending an audio comment or a good old-fashioned uh, dictionary quote to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com um, as always we're on twitter at don't panic geo john is at geo underscore lehman and i am at shannon Doolin.
1: and until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science
1: Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. What's your favorite map projection and why?
0: None of them. (laughs) They're all distorted.
1: What is your favorite map projection and why? I always use Mercator, but that's because I tend to do regional maps. When I do global maps, I prefer Robinson, though, because it's aesthetically pleasing. Good answer. So what's your favorite map projection and why? My favorite map projection? I have no idea my favorite map projection. I suppose what is the standard for ArcGIS is my favorite, because that's what I've used the most.